0: This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we've got a special return guest to the podcast, and that is Elisa Childers. So she is a former contemporary Christian music recording artist turned Christian apologist, and she's a podcast alum. She's been on episode 373 and 318 of this podcast. But I got to tell you, our episode today, I mean, I enjoyed those other two interviews a lot this one's probably the best of the three. Uh, And if you've heard her name before, it's probably because you heard her as a part of the all-female Christian pop music group, Zoe Girl, back in the day. I know you got some Zoe Girl fans out in the crowd here, but after her music career, she found her way into the world of Christian apologetics. She's been an outspoken opponent and critic of progressive Christianity. She wrote the book, Another Gospel and Live Your Truth. And that's when we had her on uh, previous episodes to talk about those a little bit. But she has a new book out now called The Deconstruction of Christianity. What it is, why it's destructive and how to respond. And this is a book that she co-wrote with Tim Barnett. We'll be releasing our interview with Tim a little bit later to discuss this book as well. But basically, there is this deconstruction movement that is happening in modern Christianity. And most people either aren't talking about it or don't know how to talk about it. Maybe they don't even know how deconstruction should be defined. Maybe they're confused as to what the tenets of it are. Maybe they actually think, well, this seems pretty practical. Doesn't it make sense to just deconstruct your Christianity and then build it back up? The nefarious thing and the problem is, and we talked about this in the interview, a lot of people never reconstruct the entire point of the process of deconstruction is the deconstruction itself and so we talk about deconstruction we talk about why co-writing a book when she swore she wasn't going to write a book for a while so we get into that a little bit but then we talk about some very specific things like what is the goal of deconstruction for most people because there really is an end goal but also most of the people that are deconstructing they tend to lean towards the same political beliefs these are people that are typically leftists and so what about the people that might just say well hey let's just fight this philosophically let's fight this in the political sphere why not we don't need to fight it spiritually. We talk a little bit about Kristen cobez Dume and J- Jesus and John Wayne and how she and others are basically steeping themselves and marinating them these, these cells in the works of people like Foucault and Gramsci and Habermas and how that leads to some of their nonsense views that they spray out to everybody. But then we also talk about Christians and how our politics should be downstream from our theology, and it's not. And how these Christians are not equipped for this fight because even people that describe themselves as evangelicals, they don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe that Jesus pays for our sins and that we have to put our faith in that. They believe that there are multiple roads to God. These are people that think that they're evangelicals. Right. And then even just evangelicalism, how would you even define that? But we talk about how the church has really done no favors because of the lack of discipleship. We do also talk about Calvinism and how one of the points of Calvinism, the L part, so limited atonement, how that could lead people or not necessarily lead people to deconstruction, but people that are already deconstructing that have kind of a theological bend, how that could add gasoline to the fire of the things that they're going through. And then we talk a little bit more about how we can practically deal with the process of, you know, what if I have a family member that's in the process of deconstructing? What if my daughter says that I'm toxic and that I believe horrible things and that I can't see my grandbabies because I believe such terrible things and I vote for people that are reprehensible, according to them, of course. So we talk about that and a whole lot more in this episode. I love every time Elisa comes on here, we always have a great conversation. So without further ado, let's get into it. Elisa Childers, this is your third time here on Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. I mean, I don't know what you're trying to do. Are you trying to creep into my space here like you handle the ladies? I got the guys. What's going on here?
1: <laughs> it reminds me of the office episode where Dwight says to Angela, you can be in charge of the women. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes, I do. It's a great quote. <laughs> and she just, she just like the delight and pride that comes over her. No, not exactly that, but I'm glad to be back with you.
0: Well, and as you have said before, like you're not elbowing into my territory because even on your show, it's pretty split. You got a pretty even keel split of guys and gals that listen over here. It's a little bit rougher, so the ten percent of lionesses that listen to this, they're they're pretty much thugs. So we love them. But um, the thing about it's that's been fun about knowing you for as long as I've known you, being friends, and kind of watching your career and different things. You have to have seen a lot of fruit come from the work that you've done, not just the books. You know, live your truth great title and then another gospel and then the new book that we're going to talk about now but we were even just talking off air about some of the downstream fruits that you're seeing of just some of the interviews that you've done so i just wanted to give you a chance to you know maybe brag on yourself and if you don't take the bait i will brag on you for you but just some of the fruit that you've seen from the work that you've done because again you used to be a recording artist and now you're doing this kind of stuff and i'm I'm sure you didn't really think in your 20s that this would be what you would be doing so flow on that a little bit
1: yeah, no, I did not think I would ever be a speaker or an author writing books or anything like that. So, it's all been kind of a surprise and it's been a fun ride, but I do think that some of the more encouraging notes that I get or some of the feedback I get when I speak at churches around the country is is really what keeps me going because you can see, you know, it's like you it's, you know this, Kyle. You you go on a online platform and people are just not nice on the internet right people <laughs> they're not kind hearted they don't you know it's like the key, keyboard warrior thing and so you know people say a lot of mean things which you know it's fine that's what we know we're that we're setting ourselves up for that but it's the it's the times when somebody will come up to me after i speak with tears in their eyes saying mm. i went through something very similar that you went through and you were really a, a lifeboat for me. And and so in my ministry, the lifeboat metaphor is something that I talk about a lot because when I was drowning in doubt and I didn't know where to turn for information, um, I just remember people like Frank Turek and Greg Kokel and Jay Werner Wallace were like mm. lifeboats for me. Like it just I was drowning and I just got to get in the boat. And so it's always my hope that I get to be lifeboats for other people. So whenever somebody says that to me, it always— uh, means a little something extra special and you get to see the fruit of it and just more on a one-on-one kind of situation. So it's it's really, truly a blessing. I, and I don't just say that as a platitude. It it really blesses me when when I hear things like that.
0: Well, the great thing about that as well is <clears throat> I just got an email this morning, which I'm sure you've received similar emails to this. It's like, You gave words to what I was thinking, but didn't know how to express. And so, I mean, again, I mean, having Coco and Jay Warner Wallace and Frank Turek, like all guys that have been on the show before, like that's why I have guys like that on the show because I never know when I'm going to run into an attack of like, oh my gosh, this is a really great point that someone made. I don't know how to address that. Well, it's like Greg Koch addressed that probably in 1984. Like I, yeah. I mean, it just, I just need to go back and read some of the stuff that he's done. And that reminds me of when you were talking through another gospel where you were basically going back to some of the early church fathers, some of the earliest writers to be like, I'm not the only one that's been distracted by these thoughts. I'm not the only one that's been, you know, kind of knocked off of my path by these thoughts. But, <clears throat> You, you kind of have this thing where you very, in a very sweet way, you, you attack sacred cows, right? So we were talking off air about the Enneagram. We were talking about some of the interviews that you've done. But now you're taking a hit at deconstruction. <laughs> so you have a new book that you co-wrote called The Deconstruction of Christianity, What It Is, Why It's Destructive, and How to Respond. This is a book that you co-wrote with Tim Barnett. So he's the red pin guy on TikTok, and I'm going to be interviewing him soon to ask him what in the world is up with the red pin when it's actually a marker. Come on, Tim, you're not fooling anybody, <laughs> but you're doing an entire book on the subject of deconstruction. You give a a definition in the book that faith deconstruction is a postmodern process of rethinking your faith without regard, without regarding scripture as the standard. So just take me into the whole process of process of, okay, why do another book? Because the last time we talked, you were like, I can't do another book. And then you you sign on to do another book and then you're, I don't know, you probably have two more books lined up. You know, why co-write it? Because as people read it, it's going to be a little bit weird because y'all will even vacillate from paragraph to paragraph who writes it. And so I'm thinking it's Elisa talking, but it's actually Tim, a little bit confusing, but I'm not the smartest guy around. Just give me the, give me the background of the book and then we'll dig in.
1: Yeah, well, uh, back, I, I would say about two years ago, I was hip deep in finishing up Live Your Truth and Other Lies. And I, like you said, I did not want to write another book. I just thought, oh, man, I can't wait to finish this and then yeah. just take two years where I don't write any books. Uh, but I started to see Tim uh, who, you know, we, we had worked together uh, on a couple of things in the past. And I started to see him posting on social media about deconstruction. And I, I didn't see anybody else really talking about it in a way that I thought, OK, they really get it. But Tim was doing that. He was calling out the Deconstructionists. He was doing talks about it. And I was really encouraged to see that because, to my knowledge, I was really the only person saying what I was saying about it and how it would relate to progressive Christianity and other things like that. And so I remember uh, Tim texted me one day and he said, Hey, you know, you need to write a book on on this topic, and then I told him what I told you. I said, "No, I do not want to write another book. No I'm like, when I finish this, I am done for two years at least. I need to take a break." And he said, "Well, what if, what if, you know, would you be open to co writing one?" And the second he said that, I thought, "Oh, this this seems like the right thing to do." And so we just, I just said, "Let's talk," and so we started talking, and it it just. Led into writing the book, and it was a beast to write. Though the research mm. was, um, it's really dark. You know, it's a it's a dark place. That that deconstruction hashtag. It's very toxic. It's a really unhealthy. Um, even just emotionally, it's a really dark place to be. And so it was. It was really a sacrifice to write this book because mm. it was not fun to research. It was not in particularly fun to write. But I do um, think that with Tim and I you know, like you said, we'll vacillate between whose voice is what. But I can honestly say that every word is is both of us. Like we took ownership of every single word. And so I'm really proud of it. And I hope that it helps the body of Christ because, you know, you read the definition earlier, our definition. I don't know how much your audience knows about how people are talking about deconstruction, but our definition is actually kind of controversial. We're, mm-hmm. To my knowledge, not a lot of other people are framing deconstruction the way we're framing it. So Um, it's, it's kind of fun to wade into those waters as well and and kind of be the underdog saying, no, I don't think people are getting this right.
0: Hey guys, real quick. If you're anything like me, you are constantly on the lookout for high quality products that are actually made here in America by American hands. The problem is that a lot of American companies have outsourced their labor overseas. So it's an American company, but it's supporting people that don't live here. So I've always wanted to partner with an American company that prioritizes America American workers, and making all of their materials here in this country. That's why I want to remind you that we are partnered with Origin. Origin is an apparel company based in Maine, and they are focused on getting as much manufacturing back to the United States as they can possibly do. What do they make they make the best jujitsu gis on the planet and these are the only jujitsu gis that are made completely in america they also make jeans yes they're stretchy and awesome they also make amazing hunting gear and i know you guys love your kuyu and your sitka but those companies use overseas labor and they don't do that to help you guys out they do that to increase their profit margins Origin also makes boots and work boots, and yes, that does include steel toe boots. And in the fall of last year, they launched a line of everyday clothing. Their Versa pants are their everyday pants, and they are just especially phenomenal. They also make other outdoor clothes and workout clothes, and they're launching new apparel stuff all the time. If you haven't already, you need to check them out and support a company that supports America and America's workers. Try Origin out today by going to www.originusa.com. That's originusa.com. Use the promo code UNDAUNTED to get 10% off of your order. Again, that's originusa.com. Promo code UNDAUNTED to get 10% off of your order. Well, and you're, you're poking a sacred cow and you're poking at something that a lot of people won't define because if they define it, then they have to defend it. And so you're actually putting a definition out there that you have to defend. But it's commendable what you and Tim did because I remember talking to John Cooper throughout his process of writing Wimpy, Week and Woke, which came out at the end of last year, and just, gosh, he was ready to you know just bang his head into a brick wall because it's just like this is so dark, it's so depraved. It's like last year I talked about on my show, The I spent a week – watching videos, looking at pictures and reading descriptions of what Hamas did to people in Israel. Mm. And the reason that I did it is so that I could describe it to people that wouldn't do that themselves, but the way that I could describe it to them to be like, Hey, evil is real. Like we, we can't just let two weeks go by and be like, why is Israel being so mean to these poor uh, people in Gaza? It's like, Nope, we, we don't get to do that. But you need people that are going to be wading into those dark waters. But my encouragement to the people in the audience is pray for you, pray for Tim, pray for John Cooper, pray for these people that are going into these dark areas because You can go into these dark areas, but then you're going to come out smelling like smoke. And that's not always the best thing. Uh, One awesome thing right from the jump of this book is the gangster Carl Truman himself wrote the foreword. So, guys, if you have not uh, read The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, again, if you're like me, it's going to be a hard read because there's not a whole lot going up on there. But it's a great book. It's a must read. It's a book that's on our book list that everyone should read. But there's so many things about this, Elisa, and we're going to dive into a bunch of different things from the book. But just generically, in your opinion— What is the most nefarious thing about the growing ubiquity of deconstruction? And we'll just use y'all's definition, but within y'all's definition, within that rubric, what's the most nefarious thing going on?
1: I think the most nefarious thing about deconstruction is that it's very singular in its goal. So if you go on all the deconstruction hashtags, they'll say, oh, there's no goal. It doesn't matter where you land. But if you really read more posts, what you see is there is a very focused goal in deconstruction. And that goal is to get you to leave the historic Christian faith. That's really what it is. They do not care if you become a Buddhist. They do not care if you become a humanist, a Satanist, a progressive Christian. They do not care where you land as long as you leave historically Christian beliefs that they deem to be toxic, abusive, and harmful. And that's really what it is. And so this is why... Tim and I are so concerned about Otherwise, maybe conservative Christian leaders talking about deconstruction as if it can be this healthy process. You know, it's okay, just deconstruct with the Bible in your hand or deconstruct based on truth. But but our question is, why are you using a postmodern word that has a very specific manifestation in culture to describe a healthy and biblical process? That makes no sense at all. And so in the book, that's why we're saying, no, deconstruction is this thing. It is unhealthy. It leads you away from Christian beliefs. And we ought not try to baptize the word to mean something positive or biblical or healthy.
0: Well, Elisa, you know this to be true. We worship at the altar of pragmatism right now. Mm. Like we come to the feet of what's practical and pragmatic and what what works. Well, Elisa, this seems to work. Why are you being so mean about this like is this your hill to die on it's like well no this isn't my hill to die on I'll die on the hill of not killing babies when they're in the womb but this is still really really important because y'all are playing with stuff that you don't even understand and that's the thing that I just don't get with these people like these people wouldn't walk into a chemical factory and start mixing crap together but they're they're taking all these different deadly worldviews and they're just kind of like sprinkling it over what they do at church already it's like guys get out of here but I I think a furtherance of what you just said is this quote here that i want to read where you and tim i don't know who it's always a guess but it's the three things about deconstruction so three things about deconstruction one deconstruction is not about getting your theology right two there is no end goal or destination to the deconstruction process there is just a never-ending skepticism of your view and then three there is no external authority to tell you that your view what your view should look like you are the ultimate authority. And this is the question I guess I would want to ask is when we talk about any of these things, it's always me focused postmodernism leads to my truth standpoint epistemology leads to my lived experience and how that gives me secret knowledge about the world and same thing with deconstruction it's there is no higher authority than the self it sounds like a lot of this kind of new age stuff that i've been kind of steeped in here a little bit recently behind the scenes because when you focus on yourself how can you be wrong Because you are your arbiter of truth. So talk to me a little bit about just the the nefarious side of the you focus to all of this.
1: What people need to understand about deconstruction, and and particularly we're analyzing how it's manifesting online, because that is where it's mostly happening. Because of the nature of it, people have already determined that their Christian friends and families are toxic, they're harmful people, Mm -hmm. they're not safe the churches are not safe and not just because maybe there's an unhealthy leadership structure but simply because of the beliefs these are what are considered toxic and harmful and abusive so because of that the the impetus to disconnect from their christian family and friends and churches and then find community on these online deconstruction spaces that that is where it is happening. And so when you when we talk about the focus on me and and you said it perfectly when you quoted well I guess we said it perfectly So you were quoting us <laughs> That's right. but yeah. it's not about getting your theology right and they will agree yeah. with that. In fact if any it's it's interesting if pe- when people go into the deconstruction hashtag and they'll say things like Um, you know, just deconstruct, but deconstruct with the Bible in your hand. They will make fun of those people because that's not what deconstruction is. It's a completely self-led process. And so basically what you do in deconstruction is you analyze all of the beliefs that were handed to you. Um, Maybe it's substitutionary atonement. Maybe it's the doctrine of hell. Maybe it's the, you know, the concept of biblical authority. Any, and this is where the postmodernism comes in, and this is what I really hope to help your audience understand, is, you know, when it comes to things like religion and morality, our, our postmodern culture has decided that those things are more like your favorite flavor of ice cream or what sports team you like to root for. These are opinions and preferences. Anything you might believe about what we should or shouldn't do morally or what, who we should worship or, or how we should worship, like you said, it's all in the altar of pragmatism. Whatever works for you. And I wish that I would have thought of this, but some one of my guests on my podcast said the greatest line. Her name is Alexa Kramer, and she said—and it was actually about the Enneagram—and she said, the enemy will make sure something works for you as long as it's not true. And I thought that was a really great statement because, you know, sometimes things feel like they work, but they're not true or they're actually bad for us in the long run. And so what what our audience needs to understand about the postmodern influence in deconstruction is that it is absolutely not about lining up your beliefs with reality. It's about lining up your beliefs with what feels right to you. So anything that makes you feel harmed or oppressed, you get rid of that belief and you replace it with a belief that works for you, one that maybe makes you feel like you have more peace in your life. And so it is. that's why we say it's a postmodern process, because as, as you know, there are things in the Christian faith, in the Christian worldview that don't feel good all the time. Mm. There are things where we are called to repent for things that if I was just left to my own devices, I'd say, hey, I think this is just fine for me, right? This is great. Mm. I'm loving this. This is working for me. But yet the Bible would call me to repent of that thing. And so the Bible calls us to repent and to turn from things that our inner moral compass might actually be in tension with. And so that's where truth comes in, though. Truth is when you you say what is real. You line up what you believe with reality, whereas in the deconstruction hashtag— you line up your beliefs based on what makes you feel right and what makes you feel less, you know, toxic and harmful. And so this is why, uh, in our book, we talk about the just myriad of people who have come up to me after I've spoken at a church, usually older, elderly people with tears in their eyes saying, "You know, my adult child has deconstructed." And what they're trying to understand is why, does that deconstruction end with my child not wanting to talk to me anymore? And even Mm -hmm. many have received no contact letters. You're a toxic person. You can't see your grandkids. And so, uh, you know, it's taken the church. I think a lot of church people are very shocked when that happens to them. And it's way more common than most people realize. But adult children rejecting their parents even relationship with their parents not because of something they did but simply because of what they believe and that's really what's happening at the bottom of this uh, deconstruction movement.
0: Yeah, somebody clipped that out, wake Lecrae up and share it with them. That was gold right there. Now I wasn't intending to ask about this but you just you this came to mind when you just described the situation you just just described. There are a lot of things kind of swimming around in the switches brew of postmodernism. This this isn't something that started in a particular year. But Elisa, I think 2016 broke everyone's brains. All these liberals or all these well-meaning moderates, if that's an even th- even a thing, when Trump got elected and a bunch of evangelicals held their nose and looked at the fact that the Supreme Court's important and still held out hope that Roe v. Wade could possibly one day maybe be overturned. Who knew like who knew it was going to happen as fast as it did. But Trump just literally broke people's brains. I think Trump broke Andy Stanley. I think Trump broke Lecrae. I think Trump broke like pick a person Uh, That maybe has deconstructed or deconstructed. uh, And it all comes back again. It comes back to this. They bought the cultural Marxist lie of standpoint epistemology and just and they just can't see. They're like, oh, well, mom and dad, if you can support a racist bigot like Donald Trump that says the things he says about Mexican people, then uh, I just can't be around you. But now they can cloak it in this Christianese of, well, I've deconstructed, and it's your theology, mom and dad, it's your theology, grandma and grandpa, that I just can't be down with. These are things that we used to just like roll our eyes at at Thanksgiving dinner, but now these are certified letters coming in the mail saying, don't talk to me anymore, you racist, horrible bigot. I mean— that, that's kind of my read of the situation, but goodness gracious, I started this podcast when Donald Trump got elected, like right after. So I've just been following the thread this entire way. What do you think?
1: Oh, I think you've absolutely nailed it on the head. I, I don't know that I've heard a deconstruction story since 2016 where Donald Trump wasn't a key figure in the deconstruction. Right? It, it, you're right. It broke people's brains is a, is a good way to put it, because whether you like the guy or whether you don't like the guy... It, it his influence in the deconstruction uh, well i would say the evangelical support of trump that mm-hmm. in particular that component was was massive in so many deconstruction stories and the thing that makes me sad is that Pete, it's like the breaking of the brain people are unable now to pull things apart and think critically like oh i can actually dislike this guy as a person, but think, okay, well, here are my two choices. I like these policies. I'm going to vote here, even though I don't like the guy. Or maybe people really like the guy. And either way, though, it's like they get villainized because of the action that they took. And and that can span the gamut from being called a Christian nationalist, just simply because you might be conservative politically, all the way to, you know, it, it's just you broke people's brains is really the way the right way to put it, because that's what you see. You, you don't see any uh, deconstruction stories really that don't mention that political element and, and directly in regard to Donald Trump.
0: Well, even specifically, when I say it broke people's brains, it 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 destroyed their ability to be intellectually honest because Mm -hmm. they can't just calmly have a discussion anymore because we have been convinced that our level of outrage equals our level of rightness. And so Mm -hmm. if I throw a brick through a window, when I get mad, I'm right because that's an extreme thing to do. Or we used to think that that was an extreme thing to do. I don't want to really go down the political side. I want to kind of bring it back to this, but I mean, this is going to end up being in the political side as well. I want to read a couple of quotes here from the book. As we'll see, for many in the hashtag ex community, evangelical is perceived to be synonymous with misogyny, racism, homophobia, and the political support of Donald Trump. And then a little bit later, Elisa, uh, you and Tim talk about five characteristics of what exvangelicals uh, are leaving behind, and this is according to Blake Chastain. He's the guy that actually came up with the term exvangelical. So here are the five things he said these people are leaving behind. Number one, a literal reading of the Bible— Number two, a belief that women are to be submissive to men. Number three, a belief in the sanctity of heterosexuality, heteronormativity, and the rejection of homosexuality as sinful. Number four, the assumption that the American way of life is best. And number five, identification and partnership with political and social conservatism. So my question here is essentially this movement is just leftism Progressivism, postmodernism, wokeism, cultural Marxism, you know, put, put whatever ism you have in there. Alisa, why don't we just fight this philosophy politically? Why don't we just fight this philosophically? Like, why do we need to take it? And I know the answer. I'm setting you up here to just hit a home run, so please do it. But it's like, I know what I would say to that, but this this seems like, some people would be like, y'all are making a big deal about this. Let's just fight this philosophically. Let's fight it in the classroom. Let's fight it politically. Let's just get these people out of office. But we don't need to make it this big spiritual deal. What do you say to those people?
1: So are you talking, I want to make sure I understand your question. You're talking about the deconstructionists would be saying that or- Well, I'm saying that people
0: that don't think deconstruction is that big a deal, So that could include, that could include deconstructionists, but people that are just like, y'all are making this, this big hill to die on. You know what? This just sounds like leftism. So these are like conservatives that aren't Christians because people think that those two things are one and the same, but these are just political conservatives that are like, no, this is a philosophical war. You know, this is a, this is a war that we're going to fight in the political sphere. We don't need to make it all godly and godlike. You know, what would you say to some of those people that seem to not think it's a big deal?
1: Right. Well, I think they they don't think it's a big deal because they are not understanding the nature of truth. Right? This is why it's so interesting when we've seen the influx of critical theory, how we see even like atheists and Christians being on the same side mm-hmm. um or as as Boghossian, I think put it in the same reality tunnel because we may disagree about what, you know, the nature of something is. Like as far as religion with the atheist, we might say, well, the atheist believes there's an objective reality about God. He just thinks God doesn't exist. Whereas the Christian also believes there's an objective reality about God, and he believes God does exist. We can have a discussion. We can have a debate because we're on the same playing field. We're in the Mm -hmm. same reality tunnel. But what what I think is going on is that a lot of people think it's no big deal because they're not understanding that this is an erosion of objective truth itself. And, you know, you mentioned standpoint epistemology and all these different definitions of truth and way of knowing what is true. And I think a lot of people are just like, oh, it's, it's you know, it's not a big deal because just let people do their thing and you can let other people do their thing. But that's because they are buying into the idea that truth is just you're the truth maker for yourself mm. and whatever you think, you know, is going to work is going to work. and. And so I think it's really a battle over that word truth and what that means. And again, like I said, the Christians and the atheists aren't always going to agree on what is true about reality, but they agree there is a truth that at least impartiality can be known.
0: I think you're right. And uh, this actually flows right into the next question because you just sometimes have to listen to these people and what they say. And I'm just going to say this, Lisa. I look back on my life with regret. There are things, there are times when I should have zigged. And instead I zagged and there's mistakes that I've made, but then there's just those opportunities that just like, it was like, you know, you're trying to grab a fistful of water and they just didn't happen. And so one of those is I was supposed to debate Kristen Kobe's Dumez on the unbelievable show with Justin Brierly. And I literally think about that all the time because I was ready to smash her to pieces. It was going to be a bloodbath, but she did an interview with Justin because she didn't want to debate me. And then Justin set me up with another Christian feminist who found out it was going to be me and then decided that they didn't want to debate. They just wanted to do an interview. And I was just like, okay, apparently this isn't going to be a thing, but y'all put that trigger point in there in your book. Okay. And I, you know, I took the bait, so we're going to have to talk about it. So here's a quote from your book. For example, when asked on Twitter how one can best analyze power and cultural systems so as to not be held captive by them, Kristen Dumez responded, I should have a better answer, but for me, it wasn't one source, but years spent reading social and cultural histories. Histories of gender, Foucault, Gramsci, Adorno, Habermas, learning to be curious about how the world works. So, let's look at our scorecards. Foucault, Mm. communist. Gramsci, the father of neo-Marxism, Adorno, the leader of the Frankfurt School, and then Habermas, a proponent of critical social theory. So when I see these Christians, especially Christian women, and you've said it before sometimes, and we see this in scripture too, you, you can kind of get romanced by things that that men don't get romanced by. But you have these people that have been spending, by their own admission, years mm-hmm. marinating in not just non-Christian But anti-Christian, a-Christian, ideologies and philosophies, and then Christian publishing houses just dirt, turn their brains off, and publish their nonsense books and just say, oh, well, we want to make sure people have a voice as if they themselves, the authors, don't have Twitter. Talk to me a little bit about that. I don't even have a fully formulated question on that. But I was just like, guys, like, you don't even even have to give commentary. You just point. Look what she said. Look what she believes. Is it any shock she came to believe these things? Ready, set, go.
1: Yeah. So this is a really—I'm really glad you brought this up because there's the sort of deconstruction explosion that's very overtly anti-Christian, right? There's the people Mm -hmm. who are saying Christianity is toxic and you need to leave. But then there's this sort of subset— and um, I think it was Neil Shenvey that coined the phrase, uh, e- the Evangelical Deconstruction Project, or it might have been Gushi, I'm not sure which one coined that. But that was in reference to a group of self-professed, at the time at least, self-professed evangelicals who were writing books to hopefully reform the evangelical church. Now, in many cases, like in the case of Kristen Dumay, claiming to be re- a reformed Christian, right? That anytime you say you're a reformed Christian, the connotation is that you're very conservative, you know. Yeah. And so a lot of evangelicals were buying these books that were written by these, these uh, evangelical deconstruction project authors, things like— um, Oh gosh, I off the top of my head, I'm gonna try to remember I'm Jesus and John Wayne, of course the yeah. Beth Allison Barr book, Making of Biblical Womanhood. There mm-hmm. was the um, taking our uh taking our nation back for God. That might not be right, but it was the one on Christian nationalism, um, though, you know, re di- rediscipling the white church, all these kinds of books that really brought critical theory to the forefront of the evangelical mindset. Um, these were all at the time, or mostly authors who are claiming to be very conservative Christians. And so a lot of evangelicals were like, oh, this Jesus and John Wayne book, this is great. This is written by a Reformed Christian, you know. And what they didn't realize is that these books are right in line with the deconstruction movement. Again, everything that they're teaching is eroding the Christian worldview. Another interesting thing about Dumais, I can't remember if we put this in the book or not, but she, you know, if you read the book, she's, again, claiming to be kind of conservative on these things. And she had said something about homosexuality, and Denny Burke went on Twitter and kind of confronted her and said, hey, I was under the impression that you um, maybe, I'm trying to remember exactly how he worded it, but basically it was questioning her views on homosexuality. And instead of answering him in a tweet, she ended up writing a blog post. And she was wrote this long blog post about how she's thinking about the homosexuality question. But she ended by basically saying, look, I'm going to process this question in community with my gay brothers and sisters. And what that told me, that told me everything I needed to know right there is that she's fully bought into standpoint epistemology, which mm-hmm. basically is the idea that— um moral truths are better known by people who are more oppressed that would be the most simple way i could put it so the only people the people who would have the highest moral authority to speak to the lgbtq issue would be lgbtq people in her mind and so that tells me every she's already made up her mind she's already decided that she's going to yield to people who have this particular struggle or maybe have already openly affirmed it and so it's it's standpoint epistemology, and then she, of course, in that tweet that you mentioned before, openly admits that she's been studying all these postmodern philosophers like Michel Foucault, and um, and and that's the thing that surprises me too is that it's not difficult to see the influence of postmodern philosophers like Foucault and Derrida in the deconstruction hashtag, but in many cases, especially in the cases of progressive Christians, they're openly admitting this. Um, Rachel Held Evans in her the book that was. Uh, published after her death. She's quoting Derrida all over the place and actually mm-hmm. says that her motive, and again, I don't I don't like to guess people's motives, but when they tell you their motive that you should believe them. Right. And she said, basically, I'm going to this postmodern philosopher who undermines the meaning of words and text because, she literally says this, because I refuse to believe that God committed some of the acts in the Old Testament that the Old Testament authors ascribe to him. So she's basically saying the whole reason I'm bringing in this postmodern worldview is because I refuse to believe that the Bible is true at face value. And so that's what we see. It's not just like we're not guessing. Tim and I are not guessing in this book as to what people are doing. They're outright telling us. I just think in a lot of cases, a lot of Christians are not paying attention.
0: Oh, they're certainly not paying attention. And the thing is, is you and Tim have already gotten and will continue to get criticism for noticing. It's like, how dare you notice what we're doing? And then it turns from, you know what? I'm glad you noticed because this is a good thing. And you know what? You should shout it from the rooftops that it's a good thing. And this, this gets into the whole deal about Christians that are just so dunderheaded where it's like they use pronoun hospitality, right? So they know somebody is presenting themselves as female when they're actually a male because they're wearing a dress, but they also have a beard longer than mine. And they're going to say, you know what? I'm going to use these pronouns because I don't want to be needlessly divisive. But you know what's not a good thing? Lying to people. You know what's also not good? Allowing people to make you lie. Right? So if you told me your name was Charlotte and not Elisa. I would call you Charlotte. Is that a lie? Well, no, I was going off the information I had, but if you told me your name was Jimmy and that you're a man, and I start referring to you as he, him, his, no, that's a big problem. You are causing me to sin. You're causing me to break the commandments of God so that I could be nice. I, I don't really get it, but this gets into a discussion about where Christians get their ideology. So there's a qu- short quote here that I, I kind of quibble with a little bit, but the quote was this, for Christians, politics will flow downstream from theology to which i would say not really certainly not in modernity i mean there are self-described christians air, air, air quote christians that openly and proudly vote for political candidates that are pro abortion pro transing of the kids anti parents rights you know whatever thing you're into and then for ex evangelicals it's the exact opposite their politics is upstream and forms their theology and then it's all these go along to get along. I want to be known for what I'm for, not what I'm against. These nicey, nice Christians that allow culture to be upstream from their theology, to allow politics to be upstream from their theology. So again, the quote just caught me funny. Again, the quote was for Christians, politics will flow downstream from theology. I just don't think I agree well, with that. it
1: should. That. It should at least. Right. I <laughs> that might agree. be a better nuance there. Yeah, well, and I don't know if we talked about this last time, but that was really based on some sociological research that was released a couple of years ago by a sociologist mm. named George Yancy, and his book uh, that he put out is uh, "One Faith No Longer," and that's what he really discovered when he was researching the views of conservative Christians versus progressive Christians. For true conservative Christians, where the Bible is our authority, mm. the the politics flows out of theology. So what we believe theologically is going to inform how we vote, or at least it should, right? Sure, but for progressive right. Christians. It was the opposite. The politics started first, and then they would form their theology based around their uh, political views, which was actually not a surprise to me. And you know what's Mm -hmm. interesting about that, Kyle, is when you think about the definitions that people have for Christian nationalism, it's actually the progressive Christian view that's more (laughs) Christian nationalist than what conservatives (laughs) tend to get accused of. So there's there's a lot of irony there in that one. The
0: irony is my favorite because when people are like, well, you're acting like a Christian nationalist, I was like, well, first of all, what do you mean by Christian? And what do you mean by nationalist? Cause typically they, they can't get either one of those terms. Right. And here's just a good pro tip for people. If you can't understand the individual words, don't combine them and try to think of a new meaning for that combination of words. But the, the thing that I think is a, a undercurrent to all of this, Elisa is we as Christians. So, you know, the, the big group, capital C Christians, we are just simply not equipped for this fight because you know what you and Tim should not have had to write this book. It should not have been something that you, we should have had to have done, but evangelicals, I, I forget if it was Barna or, or something in, in the book where there are self-described evangelicals that don't believe cornerstone Christian doctrine. Like the, the, some of them don't believe in the resurrection. Some of them don't believe that Jesus, you know, his payment for sins and our repentance leads us to Christ that, you know, or leads us to heaven. They, they think there are a lot of ways to get there. So these are self-described evangelicals that don't believe these core doctrines. And it's because Christians are completely almost biblically illiterate. I think it's because we don't actually believe the Bible is the word of God, because if we actually believe that, we would read it more than we would read Harry Potter. But we don't actually believe it as modern Christians. It's just another book that we just have to blow the dust off of a few times a year as we march into church. But I think the other thing is, is the church has some responsibility here, Elisa because we don't disciple people anymore. Like we we put you in a room, we start the smoke machines, we do our four songs. The third song always has 17 bridges and choruses and then we do our TED talk with Bible verses sprinkled over the to- the top. Everybody grabs a latte and a bag of chips on the way out and then they're good to go. There's no discipleship. You may raise your hand, you know, after, you know, the the salesman got up there and gave you his pitch. But then they don't, they don't catch you in a net. They don't put you in a group of people. They don't find you a, a, a believer with gray hair that's going to help lead you through some of your questions. Like you're a baby deer, but they don't care, right? They're just going to throw you out there with the rest of the hunters. So just flow a little bit on the fact that we're just flat out not equipped. And if you want to blame the church, great, I'm with you. If you want to b- blame Christians individually for being biblically illiterate, yeah, go for it. But man, we're just, we're bringing a knife to a gunfight here and I hate it. Mm.
1: Okay, a couple of thoughts. And I want to say what off the bat what the two are so I don't miss one of them as I start talking about the first one. I want to talk <laughs> about that kind of mega church lack of disi- lack of discipleship, but also mm. to start with that word evangelical, I think part of the problem, you know, we, we quote these studies that was the Ligonier, um in conjunction with Barna, I believe was the study that we were quoting from, mm. where like something like 47% of, evang- of evangelicals didn't even know that Jesus is God, like they didn't yeah. they believed Jesus was a created being. Well, those are shocking stats, but also I think what what we have to understand is that a lot of people don't even know what evangelical means. I'm not sure anybody does. In fact, Carl Truman uh argued that. He's like there's 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 no such thing as an evangelical mind because there's no such thing as evangelical. The word just means so many different things to so many people. You know, if you ask me, I'm going to be thinking about the quadrilateral, you know, emphasis on the cross, personal conversion, biblical authority, and, you know, share evangelism, right? That that was kind of the classic quadrilateral. But you ask most people today, what does evangelical mean? And they just think like racist or whatever, you know, word Trump, comes Maga, to their mind. Trump Donald,
0: supporter, yeah. Yeah,
1: Trump supporter, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. So there's like a massive um, just... It's like an accordion word that means so many different things. So when they ask a self-professed evangelical, it might just be a Republican that goes to church. And they think, oh, I'm evangelical because I'm a Republican who goes to church. Mm-hmm. And so, but yet they are, like you said, completely biblically illiterate. But to your point, um, I'll just share this. I, I was so saddened uh, over the this past Christmas season um, I have a, a family member who is deconstructed, very sweet, very open about it, very honest about it, not not typical of the deconstruction hashtag. So we actually even have conversations about it a lot. But um, this particular family member was sort of um, because everybody was going to go to the Christmas Eve service. This family member agreed to go with a good attitude, by the way. <laughs> it was very sweet good. about it. And I was so I was so hopeful. Now this was not my church. We didn't go to my church. We went to another, uh, the church of another family member. I'm trying to keep this very vague in case anyone uh, family. you're good. You're good. But um, but we go. It's the, it's in this area, probably the biggest Christmas Eve service that you can go to. There's like seven services packed with thousands of people each service. So it's, this is like where everybody wants to go for Christmas Eve, right? Yeah. And it was an absolute circus. I mean, it was just <laughs> it was an absolute circus, and. I mean, they had these disco ball things that were—I just—it was really off-putting to me, and I'm just sitting there thinking about my family member who's there who just wants something real. They just—they want something real, and then it comes time for the message, and I'm thinking, please, just share the gospel. Share the gospel. You have thousands of people in front of you over Christmas Eve, and you can share No, they didn't share the gospel. They read a little bit from Luke 2 and basically used that to springboard into a commercial for the church and all the things that church has done this year. And it was so off-putting. And I was so grieved in my heart because what my family member needed was something simple. I'm not saying it has to be, you know, not performed well, but something simple, something real, and then the gospel they need to be called to repent and turn from their sin turn to Jesus because everything else all sounds the same that's the message that's truly shocking and different to people when you're when you just tell them you're a sinner in need of salvation and and if they if and then we were talking about it afterwards and another family member was sort of discouraged about it as well and they were saying that at their church it's sort of the same thing and the pastor says well we we want to go easy because we want people to come back and we want and i'm just like are you kidding me you have thousands of people in front of you when you can share the gospel and you purposely don't do it because you want to make sure they want to come back well who wants to come back to that they can go see all of that done even better at a rock concert why would you think they're coming back And so, I don't know, that was a little bit of a rant, but it was so discouraging, and that just reflects the lack of discipleship. I wish that churches would understand that you don't have to apologize for the gospel, you don't have to shine it up, you don't have to put a disco ball on top of it, just speak it, just preach it, and trust the Holy Spirit is doing his job, you know? Sorry, that was a rant, but— Hey, hopefully that springboarded off what you were saying. (laughs) Hey, I happen
0: to love rants. Rants are my favorite. And so especially when they come from sources, I wasn't expecting. Let's try to get you onto another rant now. Well, before we get onto that, I I can't remember the guy's name and I need to like uh, commit it to memory, but I found a clip from this really old preacher and it was at a G3 event or something like that. I don't even know when it happened, but this clip is absolute fire because he's like, we don't have preachers anymore. We have teachers. We have people that want to teach you things and show how smart they are. We don't have people that are demanding that you repent and turn away from your sins and just in a full throated fashion, preach the Bible. And I was like, Oh, it's like, I believe you, but I'm like, I'm ready to go to war. Let's go. Where are we going? Like that. was (laughs) one of those things. And it's like, that doesn't mean that every single pastor has to be a high school football coach in Texas. But at the same time, like there has to be some call, whether it's calmly done or whether it's screamed at the top of the lungs, but it's just like, guys, you're going to go to hell. Like, yeah. this is serious. Like, you haven't been to church. I don't care. We don't take attendance. But if you don't get right with God, the same thing I said when I was on Mike Glover's podcast last year, because he's, he's a military guy. Uh, he does a lot of preparedness classes, self-defense. And it's like, great. So you've got the Ford Raptor tricked out. You've got chickens in the backyard. You've got a bug out bag. You know how to use all the different weapon systems. You know how to kill people with knives. You know how to kill people with rubber bands. So you're prepared, right? <laughs> you're prepared for this world. You're not prepared for the next one because all you've done is gather a bunch of materials that the next chimp is going to take from you once you die. Right. Mm. So you just made it easy for him. You just put it all in one spot so that he could take it. And so it's like you've done all this preparation, but you haven't prepared for the most important thing. Same thing here. You made it here and here you're going to talk about stuff that you could put out in your annual report right? Shoot a PDF to everybody's email that you have on your list. Like, don't talk about it in front of the church. We shouldn't care about it anyway. So there, now I got on a rant. So we need uh, to both maybe kind of bring it down a little bit. So let's talk (laughs) about a topic that's not incendiary or controversial at all. Let's talk about the problems with uh, parts of Calvinism. So uh, I think in the book, There are problems with with Calvinist theology, and I've talked about this a lot on the show. I've been very open about some of my struggles with some of the theology, um, how Calvinism, I think, could aid deconstruction specifically because of the middle letter of TULIP. So T-U-L-I-P, the L is limited atonement. So I want to read a quote from your book. It's where you were talking about Derek Webb. He's the former lead singer of the Christian band, Caveman's Call, who is now self-described atheist drag queen whatever who, who the heck knows what this guy is but this is uh this is what you describe in the book Webb announced that he had walked away from his faith and produced a solo album he described as a deeply personal tale of two divorces. The songs are his reflections on his divorce from his wife and his divorce from God. His pain is palpable and well articulated. Responding to the Calvinist understanding of th- salvation Webb had formerly believed, he reads that he reads, sorry, he writes that there are only two options: either God isn't real, or Webb himself simply wasn't chosen. He goes on to say that he may never find out which is true. Either way, my heart is broken, he writes in the haunting lyrics. And this is a big sticking point for me, and I know it's a big sticking point for a lot of people in my audience. And I have a lot of, like, reformed Calvinist dudes in my life, and in my audience they just don't get how I'm so stupid. How do you not understand this? I read you the Spurgeon quote. Like, you know, this this, is, this explains it. <laughs> we, we have to keep these, these thoughts in tension, and I want to understand. But I've asked these guys before. I have two sons. What if one of them's not elect? It doesn't matter if I send them to Christian school. It doesn't matter if I preach the gospel to them. They're just not elect. And I've yet to hear a good response to that. And so to a deconstructionist, this is this is jet fuel to their process because if they understand tulip and if they get to limited atonement, they're just like Well, I guess I'm just not, I'm just not elect. I'm just not chosen. So what do you have to think about that? I don't really know what Tim's leanings are, but you're, you're not necessarily in that reformed camp, even though a lot of people think you are, but talk a little bit more about that.
1: Right. Well, like you, I'm not, I'm not a Calvinist. Um, I do want to say though, I want to do one caveat here. I actually don't think that Calvinism itself like leads to deconstruction or that more people deconstruct out of Calvinism than they do other movements or streams or denominations. I think we see deconstruction coming out of every stream. I really sure. do. Um, so I don't think there's any sort of correlation between Calvinism and deconstruction. But with Derek Webb, Derek Webb is a very interesting um, case. And I don't know if you follow Leighton Flowers uh, with his Soteriology 101 podcast. hes It's really all about how he used to be a Calvinist, and now hes um, he, he calls himself a provisionalist now. And um, so he's kind of refuting Calvinism on his podcast. But he talks about Derek Webb a lot, and he made a really interesting point on one of his podcasts that Derek Webb, even as a fully deconstructed whatever he's calling himself now because that changes, but secular humanist, last I heard, mm. um, even as a secular humanist, he's still a Calvinist, which is so interesting fascinating because even hmm. recently you'll hear Derek Webb say things like well you know I guess I'm just not chosen I'm not elect and you're like you're still a Calvinist even though you're not a Christian <laughs> yeah. which is so interesting um, so I recommend that to to your audience to go listen to late talk about that you can go back in the archives and find it but um, yeah I do think there there is there is a very interesting relationship between deconstructionism and Calvinism because the ones that have deconstructed out of Calvinism, will lump all of Christianity, like, they will assume that everybody's soteriology is Calvinist, and that's what they're rejecting. And so that's why I I remember doing a podcast with Sean McDowell, which I don't believe Sean is a five-point Calvinist. I can't say for sure. Um, I know that I'm not, but people were basically saying, oh, that's just their Calvinist beliefs. And I'm like thinking, well, we're actually not Calvinists, you know? (laughs) I mean, there's lots of Wesleyans. There's lots of of non-Calvinist Christians who are biblically faithful and conservative, but it's there is sort of this this bubble in the deconstruction hashtag that assigns every belief they don't like to Calvinism. They think if you believe in substitutionary atonement, you must be a Calvinist. If you believe in hell, you must be a Calvinist. So there's there's a an interesting and very strong reaction against Calvinism in the deconstruction hashtag.
0: Yeah, that's why I said. Um... I was, I was very careful because I always have to be very careful because there's people I love that find themselves in that camp, but that's why I say that it's jet fuel because if you find that that vein, and and honestly, I, I was really sad when I read that quote because I, I don't have an axe to grind against Derek Webb because I didn't listen to Caden's call because I don't really like Christian music, uh, that kind of Christian music. And so it's like, I, I don't really care. It's like, that's just another guy that deconstructed who's making money off of the fact that he doesn't like the life that he used to live to live. But hearing him talk about how sad he was like I believed him, yeah. he could be he could be full of crap. I don't know, but it's like I actually believed him to where he just got to that point where imagine just feeling like, wow, Jesus didn't die for me, he died for the elect. Like I had no shot. Like from the jump, like yeah. no matter what my parents did, no matter what kind of music I wrote, no matter what kind of drugs I took, no matter how many dresses I wear, it just wasn't in the cards for me. Gosh, it was just absolutely heartbreaking. Um, yeah. But an- another, another through point I uh, that seems to come up a lot with deconstruction is the Bible and the church and God just seem to seem to be just meaty, mean pants that just want to restrict you. They don't want you to have any fun. They don't want you to have any freedom. And we live in this world, whether you're super woke, purple haired, nose ring person, or just like super duper libertarian. It's like, don't tell me what to do. I'm my own man. I can do whatever I want to do with my life and don't give me any structure. So I'm going to read this quote here from the book. <clears throat> Sadly, many people want freedom from obedience. The Bible offers freedom within obedience. It's talking about an entirely different freedom from the kind offered by deconstruction. Now, this will remind you because you call yourself a flaky artist. And so you, you've done a lot of art in your life. You've, you've written a lot of songs. The thing is, is once an artist picks a medium, they've limited themselves. Because you, Elisa, there's only so many, vo- so many sounds you can make with your vocal cords. If you're sitting at a drum kit, there's only, I think your, your husband uh, may have been a a musician or drummer. something at some point drummer. drummer there yeah. you go. Okay. I, I remembered. So when he sits down at the kit, there's only so many sounds he can make. Now he can get real creative. He can hook up a bunch of weird things to it, but there is a limitation. When um, Michelangelo walked into the Sistine Chapel, there was a limitation. There was only so much space on the walls and the ceiling. Okay. But we just feel like any limitation of any kind is a burden when people don't understand that if we worry about limitations, then we produce nothing, nothing whatsoever, and that's on the menu for deconstruction. What do you have to say about that? Mm.
1: No, that's a, that's a great a great quote to read to lead into this kind of thought because uh, you know years ago I audited a soteriology class and the professor said something that always stuck with me ever mm. since then and he said you know when you become a Christian you're not free but we talk about freedom but you're not <laughs> no. free. You've been bought. And he brought it into this context of the first century where, you know, uh, this this was the Roman Empire. Some scholars estimate anywhere, depending on who you ask, anywhere from 70 to 90 percent of people were slaves in the Roman Empire. This was a very oppressive culture. And of course, slavery meant something a little bit different than it did here in America. Mm-hmm. But you you were a, like a bond servant to, to someone. You were bought with a price. And so he was talking about with salvation, when the Bible talks about you've been freed, it's talking about you being freed from sin. From being freed from the chains of sin and death, but you're not free to just go do whatever you want. You've been bought by a price. You have a new master now and you serve Jesus. And I thought that that always stuck with me because mm. there's a lot of talk of freedom, especially in the deconstruction hashtag. It's like they want to cast off moral restraints. And I get that. I mean, that would feel good, right? It would feel good to be completely outside of any doctrinal boundaries, any sort of limitation for a moment until you start destroying yourself. And And I think of I didn't think of this analogy. I actually got this from John Lennox and his wonderful little book, um, Against the Flow. I don't know if you've read that, but it was his book yeah, on it's Daniel. Right over there on it's the shelf. It's one of my little favorite books. I, it was kind of a, a hidden gem, I think. But um, he talked about music and he's like, think about music. When you write music on a page, you have a time signature, you have mm-hmm. a key you're all playing in the same key, you have notes. Now imagine if you took an orchestra and said, Everybody just pick your own time signature. (laughs) Everybody just pick your own key. And um, just play the notes kind of however you want to. Ready, go. It's going to sound terrible. And people are going to be running out of there going, I don't want to hear this anymore. This is awful. So uh, to your point, limitation is good. And it actually produces beauty and order. And order is beautiful. And so I think it's just at bottom, I think our culture is so confused about what beauty is, what truth is. Like, you can't have beauty without truth. Truth is so important, and, um, and, and truth is encouraging. I mean, think about when a, a crime gets solved, when they've been looking for the killer of a crime and they finally find the killer. Like, you can breathe easy because there, there, was, there was order brought to it that's based on truth. But when you're just like, eh, just do whatever you want, I mean, that's just chaos. And that's gonna just lead to self-destruction and destruction of the culture. When
0: I think it's because we have this innate ability to just believe people that say they've been hurt. So as you were talking, Elisa, I thought about these people that always claim church hurt. Oh, the church hurt me. Well, if you start asking them questions and they start answering, honestly, it's like, oh, the church said you should stop sinning. And you didn't right. like that very much. It's like, is that church hurt? Because that's very different than a youth pastor holding you down and violently sexually assaulting you. But that's where you're, because when I say church hurt, that's where your mind goes. Uh, church hurt is like, oh, they held you down because you're a, uh, a woman. They, they wouldn't let you rise in the church or wouldn't let you be right. a leader or any of those types of things. But it's like, no, none of that happened. But you wanted right. to be open and you also wanted to be celebrated in your sin. And the church said, nah, and you're just like, Oh no. And they just crumble into a puddle. Well, <clears throat> well, let me ask you a little bit about that. Cause I know you've talked about that before, but this whole concept of church hurt as well. We just believe these people. It's like, I, I have this skepticism in my soul to where it's like, mm, I don't believe what you say. Talk to me a little bit more about that. And then I'll confirm my priors or I'll change my mind. But this whole church hurt thing, I think plays into all this as well.
1: Oh, it's it's massive, and that's probably the most difficult not to untie because there is a lot of legitimate church hurt. Um, you know, there is spiritual abuse. I'm a I'm, I speak out about that a lot because mm-hmm. I've experienced it. Um, and it's not always just the the youth pastor holding somebody down. I mean, it it's there's abuse of power. There's sure. pastors this with the rise of celebrity culture, social media, the narcissism. I think that so many pastors are drawn to can end up really having um, abusive effects on the parishioners who uh, go to their churches. And so I think all of that is very real. But the problem is that when somebody claims they've been abused, like you brought up the the issue of women. This is this is a, a perfect example. So, and this also shows how critical theory has come into this whole conversation because it really informs so much of it. When you think about the definition of justice, right? So, uh, biblically, justice is a, is an attribute of God's character. It's who he is. Like, we have a word justice to describe who God is, and it's his perfect righteousness. So, anything that falls short of that is an injustice. We have to start there before we can even think about how justice is going to meet its way out socially, Right. And um, and yet, the culture's definition of justice is equal outcome. Right. Now, that's, again, kind of a Marxist idea that's flowing out of Marxism, uh, which, you know, was ec- economics, but now it's applied to everything. So think about women in ministry, right? A church that—now, I'm a complementarian. I know you're a complementarian. Mm-hmm. So, so a theological belief that women and men are equal in value and worth but have different roles to play in the church and the home, well, that's an unequal outcome. So in the mind of the deconstructionist, in the mind of, of that deconstruction hashtag, that's not just a theological belief that you might hold, Kyle, or that I might hold. That's actually abuse. That's oppression because that's an unequal outcome. If I can't do the exact same things at church that you can, or if I don't hold the same positions that you can, then I'm actually oppressed. I'm abused. So I can claim abuse. And so that's the problem because that's not actually abuse. That's actually beautiful because that's order and everybody has their roles to play, which is actually a good thing, but yet because it's a different outcome for people— then I can actually say, well, I, you know, that's a toxic environment. That's, I've, I've been abused by that view. Now, the problem is, is that there can be a beautiful um, expression of complementarianism and there can be a misogynist expression of complementarianism. I think there are sure. some Christian men who are complementarian because they're misogynist, but not everyone. Like, I'm a complementarian because I think that's what the Bible teaches and I find it beautiful, but it can, you know, I mean, there's, that's why I said this is such a difficult knot to untie. It can be a um, very—and so I I recommend doing what you said. Sit down and listen. Don't necessarily believe everything, but ask more questions. And then it will come out if that's a real abusive situation. But I was interestingly on um, social media one day where somebody was claiming abuse, and I made a comment like, well, people think that just being taught that Jesus died on the cross for our sins is abusive. And that same person came on and said, that is abusive to tell somebody that. (laughs) So, I mean, it is, that is, that is a whole ball of wax that is really, really complicated.
0: Well, it's certainly complicated to add to something that you said. There are people that are feminists just because they're misandrist. So people know about misogyny, the hatred of women. Well, then there's misandry, which is a hatred of men. And so it's like, but you get to be celebrated and you get probably your own holiday if you hate men, but also (laughs) these, these people that, these people that, that scream for equality and equality of outcome. They never want to define what makes equal enough. Like when is equal enough? When there are exactly the same number of male and female CEOs in America, exactly the same number of male and female professors, the exactly the same number of male and female ditch diggers and bricklayers, right? right? They never exactly define it. And I'm not the first person to point this out, but a lot of these feminists, they love kind of cherry picking the things that they really like. It's like, Oh yeah, I'll have a little bit of that paying for dinner. No, I don't want to have any of that. And then they just kind of like pick and choose what they have. But as, as we round to a close here, we need to get practical. And so this isn't just a book that describes, cause I hate books that just describe, but not prescribe anything. We got to get practical about there's a person in your life Maybe they're a family member, maybe they're a, an old friend, maybe a coworker or something like that, and, you know, you either suspect or you have confirmed that they are in the process of deconstruction. What do we do? What should the church do? What should family and friends do? You know, how do we go about taking care of that situation?
1: Yeah, well, we have a whole chapter on this topic, and it's it's our advice chapter, and what we did was we took different relationship dynamics and applied Uh, sort of a grid to those dynamics, because it's very important to diagnose what your relationship is with the person, because how, let's say, a a wife is going to respond to a husband who's in deconstruction is going to be different than how uh, parents of a teenage child who's in deconstruction might respond, which that is going to be different than how an elderly couple is going to respond to their adult child and their grandchildren who are in deconstruction. So I think the first thing, if I would just kind of sketch it out, the first thing to do is do a little triage. You know, we talk in the book about how when there's an accident and people start coming into the ER, doctors have to assess what is what is the greatest damage, what do we need to treat first? And so the guy with a punctured lung is going to get treated before the person with a broken wrist. And that's because that has a more high degree of, you know, possibility of death, and, and you just want to assess these things and do some triage. So when it comes to the relationship, do triage first. If this person has fully bought into the idea that you are a toxic person, you are unsafe, and you know that, then what we say in the book is kind of counterintuitive for a lot of Christians, where we say, look, it's okay to back off. It's okay to back off, just try to stay in their life, um, live the beauty of the gospel, don't compromise your own convictions, Don't you, you never have to compromise what you believe or be forced to lie or affirm something that you don't affirm. But it's okay to back off and not try to fix their theology over coffee because it, this didn't happen over coffee. It's probably not going <laughs> to get fixed over coffee. So it's okay to back off, and that's counterintuitive for a lot of Christians because we're fixers. We want to fix people um, if that's the case. Now, there are other cases like the person in my life who's very open and will even ask me to pray for them sometimes. And when, you know, they, they're they not sure they believe God exists, but they're they're open and there's an open dialogue. That's a different scenario. So diagnose the relationship um, and so we talk through some of these things, but the one I get more than than any, uh, Kyle, is the elderly couple with the grown-up children. And so I'll, I'll maybe address that one. Mm. Um, there have been so many people, like I said, even get no contact letters. Um, I just met a lady a couple weeks ago who her daughter basically has her over a barrel. She says, okay, I'm not going to have a relationship with you because you're toxic and unsafe, I'll let you have relationship with my daughter. And she's even letting the grandmother take her granddaughter to church. But the daughter said, the minute anybody mentions the word hell, you're done. You're never going to see her again. So she's got her mom over a barrel like, oh, my gosh, if in Sunday school they mention hell, I'm never going to see my daughter again. So these are very, very tough um, relationship dynamics to to go through. And so what we also encourage people to do— is it's okay to back off, just stay in their life. I have somebody in my life who it's been ten years where I have backed off. and we don't talk about religion. They've made that boundary clear. They don't want to talk about it. So we talk about the weather. That's what we do. That's the extent of our relationship because I honor that boundary. Um, but in the case of the the grandparent, there are going to be situations in which you may lose relationships with your kids and grandkids. And this is a good time to remind ourselves of the scripture where Jesus said, you have to—the word is sometimes translated into English as hate, but it means prefer one over the other. You have to prefer God over your children, over your grandchildren, over your spouses, over your earthly relationships. And I think that's been very theoretical for a lot of people until this kind of deconstruction explosion. This is now kind of what's real. And and mm. we may be forced to say, okay, I choose The Lord, I choose my relationship with Jesus even over these other relationships. Now, again, if it's up to you, you don't want to break that relationship. But in many cases, the person in deconstruction will break that relationship with you. And if they have done that, that's a good opportunity to assess your own spiritual life. And pray. Don't underestimate the power that you have. You've not lost all control when you can pray for your loved ones. And we hear stories of people's moms and grandma. Grandmas who have prayed for them for twenty years before they they come to the Lord. So hold out hope. There is hope, and God's sovereign. He, this is not taking him by surprise. It's not like he's like, oh, everybody's leaving the faith. What do I do? I mean, he is. I think he's maybe laying the seed bed to, to bring people back to him who never were with him to begin with. Who knows what he's up to, but let's stay faithful to him. Let's do what we can to keep the relationship with those who are in deconstruction in our lives, pray and live the beauty of the gospel out in front of them. Because I'm telling you, that deconstruction space is so dark, so toxic. There's no pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. And when they get to the bottom and discover that, there's a really good chance they're going to come back to you because they see the beauty of truth of the gospel lived out in your life.
0: I've told a lot of people before, <clears throat> excuse me, is to make sure you're the right category of friend because they're the, the fun friends. They're the friends that you want to be, you know, the bridesmaid or groomsman in your wedding. These are the friends that you call when there's a party, when everybody needs to get, that, get together and do something fun. But when the chips are down and your life's falling apart, that's not the friend you're going to go to because that's goofball. They're they're the fun button, Right. You need to be that friend that maybe is the challenger, maybe pushes people a little bit, maybe isn't always the the most nice or polite, but when the, the chips are down that's going to be you they're going to run to you as fast as they can. The name of the book is The Deconstruction of Christianity. It's a fantastic read. Guys, it is out now if you're listening to this on time before we let you go. What are you working on now? What's the next book? What's the next project? Because I don't believe you that you're taking time
1: off. Get out of here with that mess! Right now, I am I am working on not writing a book. Right now, <laughs> that's what I'm working on. Yeah. Oh man, I'm I'm a you know honestly, I've just gotten off sabbatical, so I've been enjoying perfecting my bread recipes, making lots of bread mm. and brioche and all sorts of fun stuff. Maybe it's a cookbook. Maybe it'll be a cookbook in a couple of years. I don't know. I would love okay. to do that. <clears throat> All right, that's a little um, bit of a left turn, but I
0: might. <laughs> hey, you know so was Zoe girl to what you're doing now. so why that's don't you right. just yank the wheel into the guardrails <laughs> again. But hey, is does this bread ship well? I mean asking for a friend. does it?
1: Absolutely. I yes, I will ship you some.
0: Oh, well, thanks for the offer. I wasn't even thinking about that. Yeah, sure. I would love to have some bread. No, Elisa, it is always a pleasure. You're an absolute peach in this movement. I just love the fact that you're doing what you're doing. You're hitting a very specific audience in a very specific way. We need about a thousand more of you, but we're glad that we have you. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Kyle. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed the return appearance of Elisa Childers on our show. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So in the uh, notes here, I've got the link to the new book, The Deconstruction of Christianity. I've also got the study guide link in here so you guys can check that out. That comes out a little bit later. I've got links to her other books that she has released that we've talked about here on the show. And then links to her website, Instagram channel, socials, her previous appearances on this show, and all those things there. You can just check it out there. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song, per perpetua which is off their self-titled debut album on face down records the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah